0: husband and a father of two awesome kids and a podcaster himself with the podcast the long haul podcast where he focuses on exploring bowen family systems it's available on itunes and buzz correct
1: yeah that's right and pretty much anywhere people get podcasts
0: awesome we'll add the link in the description to this episode of the brewcast andy welcome to the faith and coffee brewcast
1: hey thanks for having me eric
0: Awesome. So I know I just gave a little bit about you, but I'd love for you to kind of share your own faith story. How did you grow up? You didn't grow up as a UU, right? I did not.
1: My father is a um, minister in the holiness Pentecostal tradition. So um, for people who didn't grow up in that tradition, the things that are uh, sort of visible markers of holiness Pentecostalism are women who wear long skirts and don't cut their hair, wear makeup or jewelry and, uh, men who are uh, sort of terminally serious and wear uh, jeans and long shirts uh, most often. And, um, but a lot of, um, some of the best people that uh, I've met are Holiness Pentecostal people. Uh, they're serious about their faith. And, um, and so that's how I grew up was, uh, I was really serious about the Bible and about heaven and hell. I, uh, at that time, believed in heaven and hell, and um, but as I got older, um, I was a lover of reading and liked to explore and became the first person in my family to go away to college, and in college, I took um, biblical studies as a minor and just fell in love with learning the history of the Bible, and I wanted to learn Greek and Hebrew and just wanted to know everything I could about who wrote the Bible and where it came from. And that really created a divide between me and the religion that I grew up in uh, because they take the Bible at face value and try to interpret it just based on um, mostly a sort of what I would describe as a surface reading of it. I don't know how they would describe it, but a literal reading of the Bible using things like Matthew Henry's commentary and some pretty sort of literalist interpretations. So um, when I was, um, oh, sophomore in college, I suppose, I had been for the first year of college going to this little church across the border in Kentucky. So I, I went to college in Evansville, Indiana, and this Pentecostal couple would come and pick me up and drive me to Seabree, Kentucky on Sunday nights. So on Sunday mornings, I would go to this big mega church with my friends and then on Sunday night, I would go to this tiny little holiness Pentecostal church way out in the country. I, st- I still am overwhelmed by the quality of the music there. I mean, they had banjos and mandolins and guitars, and I loved the music, but the theology I just couldn't do anymore. And that became apparent to me when I, I, was, I told the folks who took me to that, that church that I, um, I had been going to this mega church and the guy said, well, you got to be careful because the devil will make you think that that's okay. And I thought, oh my, I have a choice to make here. And so I chose to. was probably hard to hear at that age. It was hard to hear. And uh, I, uh, it felt like he was making me choose between, at that time, between my friends and my faith. Wow. And, uh, I, and, and he was suggesting that all my friends were going to hell and I just didn't believe that. And, uh, and so I went to, I stopped going to that church and haven't really been holiness Pentecostal since then. So I majored in journalism, minored in biblical studies, wrote for newspapers for a couple of years. And, but oh, but knew since I was 12 years old that I would go into the ministry. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me uh,
0: about that. What was that like at 12 years old?
1: Well, I felt so at a holiness Pentecostal youth camp in, uh, Southern Indiana, they had these altar calls and if you've never been a part of a Mm -hmm. tradition that has altar calls, what they would do is, I haven't
0: been a part of a tradition that does it, but I experienced altar calls. Yes.
1: Yeah. So did you get saved Eric or several times? Yeah. Good. That's how it goes. Serial salvation. As
0: a middle schooler and and a couple of times as a high schooler. yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And
0: then I really got saved when I found Presbyterianism, but that's a whole nother story.
1: Well, yeah. Decently and in order.
0: Always right. oh, decently in order, I say decently so You have to say that with an air of arrogance to do. I that.
1: can't do it like you can. I'm not a real like, person. Like
0: Thurston the third from Gilgamesh Island. Yes, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's impressive. That, yeah, thanks.
1: Yeah, we all have gifts. So at this <clears throat> at this altar call, uh, <laughs> uh, I I don't know what they were singing or something, but you know these fast upbeat songs and warning you that if you don't get right with God, you'll go to hell and all that sort of stuff. And I. Um, it's hard for me to even think that I did this, but I cried and prayed and sweated at the front of that church until like 1 a.m. Wow. And I, and I had the experience of speaking in tongues and felt like I knew at that point that I was called to be a minister. And I didn't know what to do with that because in that tradition, you say you're called to ministry and somebody from another state comes and ordains you and then you're a minister. That happened to my dad at, I think, 18 years old. Wow. So when I went to college, I knew that I couldn't go that route because I didn't believe that anymore. But this idea that I would go into ministry was sort of hanging in the back of my head. Uh, So I, uh, as a journalist, became a volunteer youth minister in a Nazarene church and then became a Nazarene minister. So what drew Uh, you to the Nazarene world? Well, the combination of my learning and this little piece in their manual. So the Nazarenes have what they call a manual. It's mm-hmm. sort of like the Book of Discipline um, in the yes, we have the book of order.
0: Well, of course, the, you do. do. Do you hear the consistency in that? Yeah, there's I There's a theme going. There's a theme going.
1: Wow. Yes like a bunch of math people or something
0: well first we had the book of confessions that's part one of our constitution okay so we have the collection of all histor- a bunch of historical confessions and then we have the book of old
1: what's so what does the book of I want to tell be,
0: what's what's the guy in the parliament english parliament Old old oh
1: he was so good
0: i want to be him that just yeah. sounds like so much fun and then he like sometimes i yell totally that rags on people he <laughs> totally rags on people and just makes fun of them oh imagine yeah. doing that at a board meeting or a session meeting yeah. Anyway, so yes, the book of uh, what was it? The book of
1: order. Oh, the the manual, of the church manual, of the, Master the manual. Dream. Yes. So
0: the manual. So, there was a piece in the manual that yeah. captured your attention.
1: They say that um, the Bible is um, uh, has everything necessary for salvation, contains everything necessary for salvation. That's what they mean by pl- the plenary inspiration of Scripture. But they also allow that the Bible has errors of math and number and history and uh, that. It would allow that theoretically, at least in their manual. So that was really attractive to me. Um, and it was close, it was evangelical, so it was close to what I grew up with, but, but also honored. But compared to the holiness,
0: that's like crazy liberal talk.
1: Oh, yeah. It was definitely a move toward liberalism. And I think in my
0: world, the Nazarenes are really conservative. And I assume in your new world, in your UU world, but coming from Pentecostal, that's, or a holiness Pentecostal rather.
1: That's a well, huge move. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. So where you grew up, I think you grew up in Southern California, right? Yep.
0: Yep. So Cal, man.
1: So some of the Nazarenes out there are relatively progressive. Um, if I remember, uh, there's a, there's a Nazar Point Loma, Nazarene University. Loma. My mom went there. Yeah. Oh, really? For yeah. a little while. For two so years. Was she, was she Nazarene or? No. Okay. Yeah. So, some, you know, around the, around the universities, there tends to be some, I would say, even controversy uh, around things like evolution and science and, and all that. You know, there are thinkers on both sides of that issue who are Nazarene. Um, and there are some really progressive theologians, too. But in the pews, it's a completely different story, at least. So, so there are pockets isn't of it, it progressivism. Oh, yeah, I know. The seminaries are so different than congregations. And I feel like it's a trap for ministers because you, you know, you, you, you train in a seminary and you're, you're talking about all these progressive ideas and sitting around chatting with people about liberal theology, you know, in some cases, at least progressive. And then you're thrust into a congregation, a small congregation who's been doing it the way they've been doing it forever. And it's hard. It's hard for young ministers. Yeah. And that's, I felt that, um, and I, I went to a seminary, as I was pastoring a Nazarene church. So they don't require seminary for ordination, but I wanted to learn Greek and Hebrew. So there was a little general Baptist seminary near where I was pastoring and I went there and uh, decided I didn't want to learn Greek and Hebrew as bad as I thought after all. Uh, oh, I mean, I learned on. it. I was passable, but not yeah. great.
0: Yeah. Um, Most of us are kind of fall into that category. Yeah. Even when, I don't, it, even, even when it's required.
1: Do you use it anymore? You know, shockingly,
0: I don't use, I've learned, I use the tools that I learned. I don't necessarily remember all my Greek and Hebrew because in Presbyterian world, we're required to have both Greek and Hebrew. Mm, Okay. A year of each. And, but I know the tools to go to and I can, I understand the tools. And had I not taken those classes, I don't think I'd be able to understand the tools. And yeah, I do. I mean, not every day, not like a a rabbi might use Hebrew
1: by any means. But, but for, for most, I think, I feel like for most Christians, uh, knowing the alphabet and having a lexicon is probably, yeah. You know, to gets you started anyway. As long, having you some right,
0: understanding. as long as you have the right lexicon.
1: That is a good point, too. Just saying. Yeah. Just saying. Absolutely. Which one's the right one? I don't even know. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, whatever I don't whatever know. my professor told me to have. Right. I don't, I <laughs> exactly. One, I'm gonna I just remember it was green.
0: <laughs> I still have it. I think that was my Greek, my Greek one.
1: Yeah, anyway. yeah. So I I served Nazarene churches for about um, eight years, seven seven or eight years, and uh, the last at the last Nazarene church I served, that's where I was um, finishing up seminary, and I I started to lose faith in that sort of prayer answering God who intervenes in human history, and that's the God uh, that the Nazarene church. Espouses and and uh, that their manual describes and frankly probably the God that most of their folks need their ministers to um, believe in, talk about, preach about. <clears throat> That's an interesting phrase. The
0: God that they need their ministers to believe in.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm in a so for me, God is uh, in and between. Human beings, and maybe other living creatures. So, uh, when we choose love, when we choose to care for one another, when it's not convenient for us, to me, that is where God shows up, and where we can sort of follow the thread of God. And so, that sort of God probably seems a little bit uh, milk toast to people like the Nazarenes, who believe in a God who does miracle healings, for example. Uh, who, who in, and then they talk about entire sanctification. So you can be, uh, the, they believe in works, the work, definite works of grace, salvation, and then entire sanctification is another work of grace that happens in a sort of crisis moment for them, like salvation at the altar. Entire sanctification is another one of those things. And um, I, 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 I think of a God who is always being, um, always creating and being created and uh, who um, is more interested in how we act and, and what we choose to do and less interested in what we think about her or him or whatever. I'll
0: unpack that whole, a God who is, who is creating and being created. So that's Paso, which means God is being created by something else. No? How does that work? Yeah, I don't
1: know. Um,
0: all I know I mean, is in that, your mind, what, what does that language mean?
1: Yeah. So when I look around, there are, do you know how many, like 200 and some Protestant denominations? Is that
0: Not too many? That's, yeah.
1: <clears throat> and then we're good at protesting one another. That's why we're Protestant. Right. I was reading, uh, sapiens this week, this *A brief history of humankind by, I'm going to say the wrong name, but Harari is the last name. And I've heard of it. I don't know. I I don't, but well, he, he talks about um, so more Christians have killed other Christians than anybody yeah. who's non Christian has killed Christians. And it's uh, so. Yeah, I, I they don't s- need to, really,
0: because we're good <clears throat> at it.
1: Yeah, exactly. We're taking we, care we of
0: don't it. Need any, we really don't need any help in that department.
1: Right. So I just see uh, this this sort of human struggle to figure out what is beyond us. And what is most holy and, and it gets, it's gotten ugly sometimes, but we're always sort of creating that, uh, the way we understand God and, and it changes over time. The way, the way we understand God today would be completely foreign or foreign in a lot of ways anyway, to Martin Luther, people like that. So I think that God evolves and, um, meets the needs of the day. God changes. Well, yeah. Because we Dr. Changed. Burnett. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm probably in that's, trouble now. That's risque. It is. <clears throat> well, no, actually that that's been a the
0: I mean the the whole realm of I don't know if you're familiar with process theology, the idea yep. that everything is in process, including God, that God evolves with us. And scripture relates how people experienced, you know, whether God actually changed God's mind, or that's how people experienced. Um, how that worked, you know, um, you know, God was going to wipe everything out and somebody came and intervened and said, no, God, please don't do this. You know, what if there's one person that's good in that city Will you still destroy it? You know uh, that kind of thing. So the idea of changing God, changing God, shifting God, adapting God evolving uh, is not necessarily a new, new, you know, modern postmodern concept.
1: I don't think it's new, but it's controversial right now. still um,
0: controversial to some people who don't want God to change. I, and for those folks, to, I, don't you think it's, and this is starting to maybe get into the Boa theory a little bit, but people want stability. No, I mean, yeah, ultimately, I, they want the stability, but they want stability on their terms.
1: I think that's right. So, so here's a story that, and
0: having a God that doesn't change that. <clears throat> can feed that. Go ahead.
1: Well, no, you're absolutely. Um, so at the toward the end of uh, my career as a Nazarene, I I knew that um, I was headed a different direction. Trying to figure that out, and I went to um, pray with a parishioner who, if I remember right, she had stage four cancer, and just this sort of amazing human being. Really thought a lot of her, and my goal in that visit was to help her process what was happening to her did she have any conversations that she still wanted to have Um, how could I be with her in a helpful way comfort that sort of thing it became clear to me in the process of that visit that she wanted me to pray for her healing that she would get up out of the bed and walk Mm. away yeah and that for me was a crisis moment I mean I I pulled my pickup off the side of the road I still remember where it was in this little golf course uh in Nashville Indiana. And I cried because I felt like everything had been talking about needing stability. I felt like the ground had been pulled out from under me. I mean, if I didn't believe in this God, what was I supposed to do? I was a Nazarene minister who didn't believe in the God of the Nazarenes. And so people probably thought I was bananas, but I like, uh, we would do silence and prayer time. They had never done that before. And And I had a, I really struggled to sing their songs. So instead of sitting on the platform, I sat in the front pew and, uh, just tried to sort it out every service after service, trying to sort it out mentally. And the board, um, sort of was, I mean, they were lovely people. So Mm -hmm. we were in conversation, but I was not, you know, I didn't say everything that was crossing my mind to them, Sure, but, um, a friend recommended me to a Unitarian Universalist congregation, and after I looked at them and, and thought that was probably the way I was headed, I took this small congregation. But my board didn't know where I was going uh, at first. They just knew I'd resigned, and then they found out. Hmm. They called the district superintendent, and the district superintendent came and sat in my office, and I had my credentials, and I pulled them off the wall and put them on my desk, and I said, I'll give these to you, but you can't take them from me. And he said, I don't want to take them from you. I'm going to file them in case you ever want to come back to the Church of the Nazarene. I was a very gracious guy. So he said, let me go meet with the board and then I'll call you. So I went to the parsonage like, what, 30 steps away from the church. And after the board meeting, he called me and said, uh, no more preaching. You can't have contact with the people here. Uh, As of today, you're no longer the minister at, at this church. And I'm still living in the parsonage. And to this day, one of the most uh, sort of uh, beautiful expressions of Christianity was that this group of octogenarian widows uh, who weren't supposed to be doing this took me and my wife and our child, we had one kid at the time to dinner and gave our kid a couple of stuffed animals and gave us notes and said how much they appreciated us. So, To me, uh, that ability to express love across perceived lines of difference is the ultimate expression of Christianity. And I still try to live up to that example, even as a Unitarian Universalist.
0: Well, that seems to fit right in with you, you. I mean, because you've told me that you're you would consider yourself a, a Christian UU and there are various yep. hyphenations of you <laughs> is not right. about theology. It is about the, the core principles or values is, is that. I think that's what you told me, right?
1: Principles. Yeah. Principles.
0: Yeah. Um, how many are there?
1: There's seven or six there, or. So there's a covenant between congregations and that's seven, there are seven principles, seven so principles, Okay. things like the inherent worth and dignity of every person. and Right.
0: So because it's not about theology, you don't necessarily have to get caught up in that. But this whole idea of um, being able to cross those lines and still appreciate somebody is a pretty powerful motivator in the UU world. Whether that gets practiced or not is another thing, but at least it's a value that people at least recognize,
1: right? Yeah, we struggle toward it imperfectly, I think, because there's there's the humanist contingent, which is probably the largest contingent and Unitarian Universalism, and they tend to be agnostic or atheist. Mm-hmm. And then there's a smaller Christian contingent and Jewish contingent and Buddhist contingent. And sometimes those groups uh, argue with each other for, you know, uh, prevalence in worship services or uh, you sure do talk a lot about God, uh, but I'm an atheist and how does that serve me? And so we have to learn how to worship together across those lines of difference and, and the congregation and this is sort of an argument for longer, longer term pastorates in, the, in Unitarian Universalism congregation has to learn that I can be trusted with the word God because a lot of them have been hurt in religion it, it can,
0: yeah it can be a weapon
1: Yep, and so uh, I have to prove over time that I'm trustworthy
0: I mean that's how I try to use it for control and I just want to I want everybody to look to me
1: how else would you keep things decent and in order?
0: I, yeah, I think that's the only way.
1: Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So
0: that's the flaw of Presbyterian. I think
1: the UUA has made a terrible mistake by cutting out hell. Well, how what do we have to hold over people? <laughs> I know,
0: right. You have, you have no leverage whatsoever anymore. <laughs> so, so this, I think that's a good segue. So that's been, a, I mean, you've, you've had a journey. I mean, a serious journey. I think that most folks probably cannot fully identify with. The fact that you've crossed so many boundaries and have ended up at a place that has, it, it's not even about boundaries. It's just it, the lines are so different in the EU world. Uh, I've always wondered, I'm like, I, I don't even know what I would preach in a UU world. I don't know. I, I don't know how I would preach. You sort of have to be the a jack of all trades, master of none.
1: Yeah. And to I've- some respect. To some degree, I think that's true.
0: Pulling from all, pulling from all, but at the same time, what a gift to be able to pull from all these different resources and say, you know, this isn't necessarily about cafeteria, just picking the ones I like, the ones that, what is going to help us grow? What are the, what are the pieces from this particular tradition that are going to maybe challenge our assumptions? I mean, you can take it in the positive, negative, as opposed to just the positive, positive or the negative, negative, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah and yeah, say, the, you absolutely. know,
0: how can we grow from this experience and understand it deeper?
1: Yeah, so my my argument is, uh, first of all, religion is syncretic, right? So it, it pulls together pieces from other traditions. Religion has always done that. Christianity is um, a pagan tradition. You didn't say that, I did. Um, so uh, I've said it. Yeah, don't blame Eric for well, that. Well,
0: I mean, we pull from, yeah, We Christianity is very adaptable in some respects and we can pull like, for instance, the Christmas season and the Easter season for that matter, and, and adapting pagan holidays or pagan festivals and making them into Christian. We're good at that.
1: Yeah. What's called
0: that a cultural appropriation or something like that. But anyway, yes.
1: Yeah. So my argument is that when you're bringing in pieces from traditions that are not yours, you have to be in conversation and not be co-opting things. And, So, uh, you know, I I wouldn't do, for example, I wouldn't try to uh, be Muslim at Ramadan, but I could talk about the values of Ramadan and uh, what my friends who are Muslim are celebrating right now and what they tell me. I mean, I can talk about things like that and we we all have things we can learn from that. The other thing I would say, though, about ministry and Unitarian Universalism is I believe that a minister should have an identified religious path. So I'm Christian, and the Christian scriptures inspire me and instruct me in ways that uh, other traditions don't. And I I sort of yield some of my individuality to the Christian tradition. Taoism too, for me, to some degree, uh, at least the readings of Taoism. But so I don't try to I don't try to pretend that I'm Muslim, or or that I'm Jewish. I'm a Christian, Unitarian Universalist. I'm going to probably talk a little more about Jesus than most of your ministers. I've said this to the congregation I'm serving now. But I tell him, you know, two uh, two ministers ago, you had a Buddhist, and he talked a lot about Buddhism. I'm going to talk a little more about Christianity. So that's one of the beauties of Unitarian Universalism too, is the congregation calls their minister, and it's important for them to ask good questions about theology and fit and that sort of thing in the interview process.
0: So, how is such a diverse group works together is um, is is a, is a challenge. But I mean, yes, you have your your core principles, but People are still coming. Theology affects our values. Theology affects the lens through which we see the world and experience the world and even experience ourselves. And with people coming f- with such different lenses, I mean, even in the humanists, I mean, it, pretty much any tradition is going to have different lenses. Christianity is not Christianity is not Christianity. There's there's 50 million yeah. different flavors of it. And then even within a single congregation, at least my congregation, you get people in the pews. You know, the old joke is you get 10 Presbyterians in a, in a room and you're going to get 52 different opinions.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Right. So. And I think that's true in a lot of different traditions. Maybe some of the more conservative, like Nazarene or holiness, they they're, they tend to be a little closer to the center line, at least publicly. <laughs> what they actually believe is irrelevant. It's it's what do you espouse uh, in, in some of those traditions. But there's still divergence. There's still diversity to some extent. And in a UU, that's just exacerbated to a whole different level. But that brings us to, I think, some of the stuff that you're studying with your... Um, Bowen oh, family systems theory, how do you bring uh, all of that t- together to bear witness to the the sense of community and belonging and connection that, that we as humans share? One of the common threads that I've seen in just about every religion that I've studied, and granted, most of them I've studied very cursory, is that everything is connected. Everything is connected through some power through some energy, whether you call that God or uh, nature or whatever you call that energy, Uh, there's some energy that pulls everything together. You know, when I talk to humanists, they use really religious language to talk Mm -hmm. about their understanding of what the world and universe looks like, even if they're atheist. And it just, it surprises me, but also I find it kind of humbling and inspiring but there is something universal about that. And we get lost in the theology, you know, what is actually happening in the Eucharist? What is actually happening? Well, did, was Jesus really resurrected or was it, you know, how did that work? Uh, You know, what was happening up on the cross? We try to get into the mechanics of it, but really it's about the value that everything is connected. And when one part is affected, the whole is affected. And I think that's, and I, I, what, as I've been looking at Bowen theory and looking at and listening to your podcast, uh, trying to understand, I mean, whether you go with Bowen theory or Edwin Freeman, who was a student of Bowen and sort of took it in a different direction and Bowen actually, from what I understand, advocated for Edwin to join faculty saying, no, we need his voice. I don't know if that relationship continued, if Bowen still liked Friedman after a few years because Friedman did go in a different direction, but uh, Bowen was quite a fan of Friedman.
1: Yeah, it's, that relationship is really interesting to me uh, because. For me, one of the most important uh, sort of teachings that I pull from Bowen family systems theory is that we can be in relationship, in meaningful relationship, and think differently. Uh, so that's really important in Unitarian Universalism, of course. I mean, we we don't all think the same. We don't assume that we all think the same. But in in evangelical religion, it, it seems to me at least i'll just talk about my experience i was always sort of afraid that if i got too creative with my theology or sort of ran away with the thoughts i was having about god uh, as a as an older teenager that i w- i would remove myself from the herd in a way because i was in a system and this gets to bowen family systems theory some i was in a system that valued sameness and and you know Maybe this isn't fair, but I experienced it as a fear-based tradition. And in a fear-based tradition where the the threat of hell is sort of always hanging over your head, the human instinct in, in times of fear and the instinct that sheep have and the instinct that bees have is to group up for safety against the enemy. And so that form of grouping up meant that we all believe the same things. We're all saved and sanctified and filled with the Holy Ghost and going to heaven. And uh, there, were tests, there were parts of the service where you testify to that fact to sort of demonstrate that, look, I'm, I'm still part of the herd. I'm still part of this system. So um, I can talk a little bit about Bowen theory if, if that works.
0: Yeah, um, that was kind of my segue.
1: Yeah.
0: As rough as it might have been.
1: No, it was.
0: It but looking, I mean, fun. I think UU is a fascinating, more so than I think other traditions. UUism is, uh, can I call it UUism? Is that yeah, a word for sure? Yeah. Uh, UUism is is kind of a, a a study in family systems, regardless of who which you know theorist you follow it's fascinating to me to figure out how do these how do these folks even talk to each other one of the challenges between the the progressive world and I like to say the conservative evangelical because I would consider myself a progressive evangelical Mm -hmm. um, I don't think anybody has to get in line but evangelical in the sense of sharing and and spreading and, and inviting other people to experience it on whatever terms they experience it but one of the challenges is those two worlds just don't even speak the same language and to find a way to interact is really challenging. And I think some of this stuff, the differentiation of self, the uh, and I know family systems is talking about family, you know, yeah, but it's talking about necessarily nuclear family or, or at least blood family, but I don't know about Bowen, but I know Friedman <laughs> said, no, this applies to communities. This applies to any kind of definition of what we might call family, whether that's a family of friends, a family of congregations, and and I think um, was it Bowen or Friedman? One of them was. Re- I think Friedman was really focused on clergy, particularly really focusing on what is the health of clergy and how do we how do we help clergy find health in the midst of a usually a, most human systems are pretty dysfunctional. I mean that's just who we are. That's not a bad thing. That's not a not a pejorative, but it's just the reality that we're all pretty dysfunctional and we're all competing. We have competing needs, and that's usually where the conflict comes in. At least that's what uh, my understanding of Friedman. The, few little study that I did of Friedman back in the day. Um, but so I think, I think this is a good segue into trying to figure that out. So, so what, well, first of all, let's start, let's back up a little bit. What attracted you to Bowen family systems or was this a system that you learned in seminary?
1: Yeah. So I was, uh, I did a chaplaincy residency in Indianapolis. Um, when I was coming into the Unitarian Universalist Association in 2006 or seven, whatever that was. and. I came across Bowen Theory I had a great, uh, CPE supervisor, Beth Newton Watson, just incredible. And for those at home, CPE is clinical pastoral
0: education is something that most of us have to endure. I mean, it is an opportunity <laughs> to invest in a clinical setting to to talk about pastoral issues.
1: So to me, it felt amazing. I loved, CPE. I hear that you did not, but I absolutely, oh, I loved my CPE because I, oh, okay. I didn't do official CPE. Oh, there you go. <laughs> it was but awesome. I, I loved, I loved the fact that there were, I don't know, eight or nine of us ministers and we would go out and care for people in the hospital. And then we would come back and talk about what we did and, and write these uh, things that people hated. I love these two actually verbatim. Verbatim, Yeah. Right. So that's why
0: I did what I did. So I didn't have to do verbatims.
1: Yeah. It's word for word, just a word for word transcript.
0: Hang on. I got a dog barking in the background. (laughs) Okay. So you did your CPE.
1: Yeah. And, uh, and we, so we would go out to the hospital, visit people, you know, and, and people who were dying, people who were getting ready to have uh, sort of routine surgery, all across the spectrum. Then we would come back, and people from different traditions would talk about what we did at the bedside and why we did what we did. And uh, it helped me really understand, begin to understand who I was. And that's what self differentiation uh, means. Uh, the way I interpret it is uh, it's about coming to understand the system that you're in. So the different pressures that are exerted on you that, uh, form you into the person you are. So my family has a certain way of dealing with conflict. Every family has a way that they sort of default to where they ha- handling anxiety. Uh, so some, some fight just have big fights and then they move on from there. Some do emotional cutoff. That's another way of handling anxiety where you just don't talk to any, to people anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people sit down and work it out and stay connected. Um, so self differentiation to me is, okay, I know who I am as an individual, but I also know who I am in the context of this family system. And I'm able to, for example, communicate with my holiness, Pentecostal minister, father as a UU minister and say clearly what I believe, not expecting him to believe the same thing, not trying to win him over and allowing him the room to be who he is. And for me, coming across that in the hospital when I was serving as a chaplain was transformative because, and and I'm still learning this. I mean, I have days where I'm terrible and days where I'm better, but learning that I don't have to be winning the world all the time, that I can just be in relationship with people. And when I don't expect people to be more like me Cause that's an anxious response too. You know, they're different than I am and I have to make them the same. Uh, and when I can stop that, I'm not just a, a better son, husband, father, but I'm also a better minister because I can hear people for who they really are and not for the ways that I wish they would change. Um, that's to me, not easy, a lifelong struggle probably, but, uh, but important. So, Bowen uh, was a psychiatrist, and in the 40s, 50s, 60s, he started to develop the theory that, you know, typically, even still today, I think, we see uh, human behavioral problems or um, even mental illness as something that's located in the individual. But Bowen said, look at the whole family system. Look at the system that they're operating in. So and, the Friedman
0: equivalent is the identified
1: patient, right? Well, Bowen talked about the identified patient too, uh, okay. if I'm not mistaken. So um, That wasn't one of his core, eight core no, things, though. it's not, but it's, it's an important... So, so Bowen might say, I would say, I don't know what Bowen would say. I would say, when someone comes and says, this person is the problem, that person is the identified patient, don't mm-hmm. trust that. Uh, it's because it's easy to get sucked in as a minister to, okay, we're going to, we're going to work on fixing that person. Um, you know, the, the, the person who won't communicate anymore, we're going to, we're going to get them to communicate. But when somebody comes to me and says, this is the, this is the identified patient. This is the problem. I try to steer the conversation back to who's the person who's bringing me this. What are they thinking about right now? How are they? What do they want to get done in the system? What they, what who do they want to be in the system? And and sometimes we begin to make changes like that, and other people who are different than us see that we're not threatening anymore. That we're not trying to win them over, and they come a little closer, and we can mm-hmm. get to know them better as they are, not as we wish they would be. Um, and and so to me, that's that's the heart of it. And one thing that I try to keep in mind as a minister is, everybody in my congregation uh, came, came up in a family system. And they're all bringing these different ways of handling anxiety into the system of the congregation. And God, what a mess that is, if you're trying to get everybody to do things the same way. But if, if I can, I think it was Friedman, maybe, who talked about getting up on the balcony, rather than being down on the dance floor. I can't remember who did that, but that's I don't amazing. know who said that, but it's a good one. Yeah. Then I can <clears throat> sort of see the way, Oh, this person always has the anxiety about money and that's what they're going to bring. And that's actually helpful because in certain
0: circumstances, it can be, yeah, yeah.
1: that can be helpful because I, I would spend on programs until the money's all gone. But yeah. so they're going to slow me down a little bit and I can value that irritating expression. Uh,
0: if I try hard. (laughs) So it sounds like the systems theory is about one recognizing, inviting people to recognize in themselves what they're bringing to the system. What are the gifts and the challenges that I bring and inviting people to recognize how that fits in the process in order to help understand the process better and possibly shift the process to a healthier place without having to necessarily you know, uh not change, but not have to feel anxious that it's not the way I think it should be,
1: yeah, and you and I think you have to as a leader, you have to know your goals too. What do you want to get done i mean uh, what's what's religion about? what's the congregation about? Um, what would you say religion is about um, depends on the context, I suppose, uh, just in general, yeah, I think it's about trying to create lives of meaning and, and purpose. And uh, I know that in some of the traditions that I've been a part of, that would sound heretical. Uh, But there, even if they, even if a person believes that there's a God out there, who's sort of human-like waiting to answer our prayers, then the only meaningful life for them is to serve and worship that God. So I would argue that they might not like the way I say it, but people who are very different than I am are trying to do the same thing in religion. It's about creating lives of meaning and purpose is my argument. And you do that, you you do that by knowing the values of your particular community. So for me, for the community I serve, love, service, and justice, are their three sort of big things in their mission statement. So uh, they want to serve the community. Justice is really important to them. So that uh, that's a lot of what I do and help them do. Um, it would look different if I was serving a different congregation and that would also probably be fine. But uh, for where I am, that's what I'm doing.
0: Is there a way to sum up what this whole family systems theory is about, particularly from the Bowen perspective?
1: It's about knowing who you are, being clear about who you are and what you want to accomplish, being in meaningful relationship with people who you perceive as different than you and learning about. systems that brought you into being so I can give you an example from my own life I I noticed I've noticed that I have trouble connecting with certain kinds of folks in congregation in congregational life and um, one of those sorts of people is in my family so I got I instead of working on the people in the congregation I got to know that person in my family better and I began to see what it was. It was hooking me and something about working on that relationship made it easier to relate to the people in my congregation. I think that almost always happens when a minister gets curious, not just about their congregation, but about their family Mm. and then can start to work on those relationships. The relationships in the congregation also improve. So um, knowing yourself, knowing your context and acting out of uh, a set of deeply thought about and considered, well-considered goals.
0: I mean, one of the things that's always frustrated me with with family systems theory, at least what I read from Friedman, again, my context is Friedman. I'm not as familiar with, with Bowen, but it is always trying to recognize the system. What is... Whoever it is that's being talked to with or thinking about this, what is their place in that system? And is are there ways to shift the system to make the system healthier and people get along better, or at least have better understanding? But and what I didn't hear Friedman say, or at least maybe it's there and I just didn't read it, was: Are there relationships that are just toxic?
1: Are there relationships that are just unhealthy and need to be ended? I would say yes, but not very many. Um, and and I think that the way bowen talked about emotional cutoff was it was just one of the things that people do and it brings just like any other
0: matter for more of a reactive than than an intentional saying you know what this is toxic i can't i can't be a part of this anymore
1: yeah well that that brings up an important point so bowen bowen imagined the scale zero to 100 and at the bottom think of a scale with like two lines going up so at the bottom One of those lines is emotion. One of those lines is intellect. And emotion just means sort of your automatic reactions, the things that come to you in the moment. So at the bottom of that scale, those two things are so fused together that a person is just reacting all the time. Whatever stimuli come at them, they just react automatically. At the very top, which is imaginary because Bowen didn't think anybody had actually gotten there, somebody could always choose between emotion and intellect in any situation and choose which to act out of because sometimes acting out of emotion is the right thing. Um, so he, he would say that, um, the work is to move up that scale a little bit to be a little more, uh, in control of our, of the way we behave a little less just automatically reactive. So there's a way of doing cutoff. I think that's just automatic, boom, not talking to you anymore. You did something I disagree with. There's also a way of, of thinking about, you know, I've been trying to get with this person for 10 years and be in a meaningful relationship, and they've been hateful and rude, and I've tried everything I can think of. So I'm going to get some distance from them. That, I think, is not only um, okay, it's probably necessary in some given number of relationships. But I, I would say that if I find myself cut off from 10 people in my life, refusing to talk to them, then I probably need to look at. There's something else going on in you, right? What What's going on? Yeah, you're so the it. identified patient now. No, I'm kidding. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. I've identified myself as a patient. And Andy, how does that make you feel? No, I... that is another interesting thing about Bowen. That's hard. For, that's been hard for me to get used to. He says, like we watch these videos of him lecturing in the 60s, 70s, whatever. He he's not all that concerned with what you're feeling. Yeah. So. He, he wants to know how's your functioning? How are you behaving in relationship? Make a good Presbyterian. And yeah. I think it's interesting. I just think <laughs> it's an interesting way of thinking about stuff. Uh, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but it's interesting. And, and different family systems, I think, raise people to think about that differently. But um, I think to me that the goal, and I'm, I tend to be more emotional. I really have to slow that down. I, I want to react automatically. Uh, and social media is not helpful and no. it feeds that addiction but I, so for me it's to try to slow that down sort it out Is this really what i want to say think about that and uh, have a little more discipline um so tell me about your podcast
0: how, how did that come about you you got involved in the, what? what's the postgraduate what is it that you're doing yeah in the so
1: i'm the i'm a, in the postgraduate program at the bowen center for the study of the family so uh that's it's right across the way from Georgetown University, where Bowen uh, practiced for a long time. Mm-hmm. And these are a lot of the people who are in charge now, although it's starting to change, are people who studied with Bowen. So the goal of. I imagine Bowen,
0: that would change after a while. Well, it would have to. Time has that <laughs> effect on people, you know?
1: So, yeah, so it's we're at the, we're rolling past that generation. It's really interesting for hmm. uh, me. And so. Uh, they, they want to disseminate Bowen theory. And Mm -hmm. one of the ways they do that is to bring in us to the post uh, folks who are interested in the postgraduate program. We go there four times a year for a few days and we present and we listen to other people present and, uh, and we go back and study and bring it back. So my podcast is about taking that theory that can be pretty heady, uh, and trying to apply it to everyday life, and I'm, yeah, I feel like I'm still working out how exactly to not make it so heady, um, but but that's that's the project just to try to apply it to everyday life and to you know I'm, I'm offering uh, clergy coaching now. So
0: yeah, uh, say about that. Talk about that. How's that going?
1: Well, I so I want to help ministers um, think more clearly about the problems that they're facing. In their congregation, and how they sometimes connect to the ways they relate to people in their family of origin, and how getting curious about both of those systems will help solve problems in each. Uh, so I, I meet with folks for you know fifty minutes or so, and and I'm a, a sort of partner on the journey. Uh, I don't have all the answers. I feel like I have some good questions and uh, some ways to help people think about problems. And frankly, anybody who's been in ministry for very long, I think you and I both been in about 20 years knows that it's sometimes just good for somebody who doesn't have the anxiety of being in a sort of troubled system or an anxious system to help, to have them think about it from a more calm perspective is really helpful. And that's what I hope to offer. Non-anxious presence.
0: Well, relatively. How How many times did I hear that in seminary? Non possible presence. And I'm like, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> and then I get really all anxious response. again. Right. Yeah. And well, yeah. Welcome to my world. Did Friedman just say non anxious presence? I can't remember. I don't know if that was Friedman. I I heard it so much in seminary. I know. That and I know. that and that and the word paradigm shift was just like, come on, people. Well, think I'm going to sh- think of new words. I'm going to shift your paradigm about non-anxious presence. <laughs> I'll shift your paradigm. You, oh, wait, I'm sorry. What were you saying? Oh, see, I was because coming out of the
1: emotional line again. That was my reaction. I think the only non-anxious people who have non-anxious presence are dead people. And uh, so it's, it's, again, about the scale, um, uh-huh. you know, relatively non-anxious presence. And, you know, uh, Ron Heifetz at Harvard talks about um, adaptive leadership and the fact mm-hmm. that sometimes you have to crank up the anxiety a little bit to get things to change. So um, to to not you're be pull, you're of, pulling
0: from all kinds of disciplines, man. I it's... wow, <laughs> wow. Hey, I, I love
1: I love simple ideas. And to me, his his idea of the leader with their hand on the thermostat, he's the one that powerful. talked about the balcony view. Is it? I don't know. Okay. If he, he
0: probably got it from somebody else, but I remember. Yeah, he talks about the balcony gotcha. view and maybe he got it from Friedman or somebody it's else. It's very good. I just and like he, that. He mentions point. that a lot in his, his writings
1: and, and the, 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 the leader who can turn the anxiety up a little when it's not anxious enough to change or turn it down a little when there's too much going on. I love that idea. It's a lot of control. Yeah. But we and have, that, require, that requires a lot of, a lot of
0: talent and, and yeah, it, it almost sounds manipulative to me sometimes.
1: Well, I mean the, the, Uh, the alternative to me is just letting the system coast and do what it wants to do. Yeah. And that's not good either. I don't think. No, it's well, it's a dance.
0: Yeah. Right. And sometimes even though one person quote unquote is leading, it oftentimes is the person leading, still responding to the person who's following. And that's how you, when, when you're able to do that and you're able to read each other, it's not a matter of who's leading, who's not. It's about reading each other and being able to uh, move together in that, even though each of you are doing something different.
1: Yeah. 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 It's never outside relationship. Ministry work is never, you know, just the leader doing anything. So let me try this idea on you. Is that okay? Uh, It it has to do with. I can always cut this out later. Yeah, go ahead. Right. Yeah, <laughs> like comedian comedians meet and just throw bits at each other. This that's this yeah. is an idea that I'm working on to try to hammer right. out. So, okay. honeybees, right? So they get in a hive, and then it comes time to like this hive is no good anymore. This location is no good anymore. It's going to get cold, and so the scouts start to go out and try to find the next place to go. So they they go out and they crawl around this place, and they 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 notice how big it is. They notice how big the opening is because they want a small opening so that they can't be attacked. They want it up high away from bears and, you know, depending on the kind of bee they are.
0: So Especially Yogi Bear. Or right. Because he's, he's just going to throw them in his picnic or, basket. Or, or Winnie the Pooh. Those two are really, those are the worst of the forest, I'm telling you.
1: Your knowledge of nature is overwhelming. Isn't it? Yeah. 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 Especially animated nature. Me, me and Leopold,
0: man. We're like... Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so these scout bees come back to the hive. And they do what's called the waggle dance. This guy won the Nobel prize a hundred years ago for figuring it out. Mm-hmm. So they, the, the duration of the dance is proportional to how passionate they are about this location and the way they do the dance points at the location and they're given all kinds of information in this little dance. And I've seen what the dance. Is, it's
0: amazing. What's that? I've seen
1: the dance. It's amazing. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's, it's so, truly, it's truly astonishing. So these other bees then, are, some others will, in the first step, will try, be trying to sell their place too. But then they all go out and check out another place and it just sort of starts to organically grow that one, one location is becoming um, more dominant than the other. And eventually, there are enough people doing the waggle dance, enough bees doing the waggle dance toward that one place that they all fly out, create a hive, and then go to that new place. I think social media... And that's the way, by the way, human beings could solve our problems. We could we all need to, all need to waggle dance. Well, maybe and that's a whole new style of worship coming on. I'm telling
0: t- you, well, it's Pentecostal. It's back to my roots. It is. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and we come
1: full circle. That's right. So these, these bees are, are um, giving up on ideas that are becoming less popular. We mm-hmm. say, okay, I see that this one's not going to win. I'm going to go check out this for my own. They go out and check out the new place, but then they come back and do the waggle dance that is building some of them. Human beings, it seems to me, have a hard time giving up on ideas that are becoming less popular. And now, because of social media, we don't even know when things are becoming less popular because what we see, the logarithms just feed us, they reinforce our own opinions. So we're doing a waggle dance with, 10 people that we think is a million right. and, 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 and it shows up in our elections when people who win the most votes are not uh, the president. So we have all kinds of systems that do away with the idea that we might lose, that, that our idea might not be the most popular. We don't even know anymore. Mm. So we as ministers come into this system, the, all these systems where everybody's ideas are just reinforced. By their social media feeds, and uh, the ideal is this like New England town hall that people hold up, you know, where everybody says their idea, and then they nobly come to a conclusion. But there are forces in our society that are undercutting that very basic process. Hmm. and we we hold on to ideas too long, I think.
0: Um, but what is to say of the ideas that are unpopular? that are, I mean, Jesus' idea was pretty unpopular. He didn't have, I mean, yes, he had crowds, but he was also hated. And then suddenly it becomes the biggest religion in the world, or the most dominant, I would say, has the most influence on the world that we've seen in history. But his idea was, a, it was a small fledgling cult. And suddenly it becomes, you know, not suddenly, actually, it took hundreds of years for it to finally kind of take a hold and for it to become the official religion of the Roman empire under Constantine. But it took a, it was a hard fight. A lot of people died. Yeah. So isn't it possible that sometimes the minority idea is actually the better idea. It's just people are afraid of it Yeah. because one, it's a it's a loss of control. It's change, which means a loss of control. I am no longer in charge uh, or I'm no longer able to make the decision because it's already happening around me. And I, that doesn't feel good. It's, it's, it's things working in ways that I'm not used to. I have my system down. Don't mess with my system. I had a lady come to me in one of my churches and said, look, I I understand on the whole LGBTQ uh, issue. She says, look, I know we're heading toward same sex marriage and all that stuff. This was 10 or 15 years ago. She says, I realize that, but can you just do it after I die? Can you wait till I'm dead? So for her, it wasn't right or wrong. It was just, I'm just, I don't want to be around when this happens because this isn't what I was raised with. This isn't who I am. And it's not even for her. It wasn't. And the more conversation she and I had, it wasn't even about what she believed or not. It was just change. It was a lot. One of
1: of the, one of the important things that those bees do is they go, they actually, they're not just starting to do this because everybody else is. They go out and do their own work. They look Mm -hmm. at it. So I'm sure there's some copycatters that just want to be cool. Well, maybe they want to be the, the the lazy, the lazy, uh, the lazy bees, bees. the lazy bees. Yeah. But, but I would encourage somebody like that instead of just saying, it's not comfortable for me. I'm not going to do it. Get curious. Realize that it's not, nobody's going to pass away because we, um, afford LGBT people the same rights we've been affording straight people for hundreds of years. Um, so, so if we can, when we can get curious and do our own work of examining an idea that's foreign to us, then I think that process is, is more like what happens in a hive and more natural, I think, and, and more uh, productive.
0: Uh, that's what Brene, Brene Brown brings that up. She talks about getting curious about why am I reacting this way? Why am I getting curious about our own feelings, let alone trying to project on others what we want them to feel?
1: It's, it's really important. And ministers, most of all, should know that because we're just projection screens for a lot of people. Yeah. And we, yeah. we are their father or we are a projection of the bad minister they had or the great minister they had, which sometimes even worse or, you
0: know. So would you say that
1: um, family systems
0: theory, regardless of what theory you want to follow uh, or who, you know, who, whether you like, you know, eight different principles or what is Friedman's five, four or five um, whatever, you know, works better for you for your math skills. <laughs> <laughs> I like five personally better than eight, but is it really, I mean, isn't that kind of the fundamental it's about understanding oneself and how I'm reacting and responding to the system and ways that I might be able to do that better. That would lower my own anxiety, let alone other people's. And I'm not even trying to miss necessarily lower other people's I'm trying to in some sense, maintain my own, in a realistic, um, you know, not the emotional cutoff, the unhealthy version, but in a realistic way to be able to say, how can I still be a part of this system and be healthy at the same time? And people are going to be who they are. And there's people, I can't control their behavior, but I can, I can make a choice about myself. Is that kind of basically the fundamental or one of the fundamental things about family system theory that helps us not just as ministers, but as people?
1: Yeah. And, and, but to not do that in a vacuum and to whoever, you know, that antagonist is that I struggle with. I wanna be in contact with them and understand them on their own terms, not just for how they're impacting me. So that requires a lot of work and thought. Um, But yeah, so to know myself in context, be in connection with people who disagree with me uh, in meaningful ways that afford them uh, their own humanity. That's I think the key.
0: So tell me, uh, when are your services
1: uh, at Valley Unitarian Universalist Church in Chandler, Arizona? So right now we meet on Zoom at 1030 a.m. on Sundays. And the link is at our website, buu.org. Someday we will meet again in person at 6400 West del Rio Street in Chandler Arizona also at 10:30 a.m. yeah and what's the uh, your podcast has a, a, a website yeah i would encourage people just to look up the podcast on iTunes uh, the long haul podcast you'll you'll find it there there are a couple other uh, podcasts who have similar names but mine is a there's a little clergy collar on my logo so awesome Andy, thank you so much
0: for coming on the Brewcast. You're awesome. Thank you. You can contact Faith and Coffee at eric, E-R-I-C, at faithandcoffee.com. The Faith and Coffee Brewcast is a podcast about Christian life and faith in the everyday. Check out the Faith and Coffee Brewcast at brewcast.faithandcoffee.com or on iTunes and be sure to subscribe. You can also subscribe to the Faith and Coffee blog at faithandcoffee.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash faithandcoffee. Be sure to click on that like button everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for the Faith and Coffee Brewcast. Remember to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Be of good courage. Know that you are loved and have a great day. The opinions expressed in this episode do not and are not intended to represent the opinions or official positions of any of the organizations with which I, Eric Letterman, am associated. Faith and Coffee is produced by Bad Coffee Productions, LLC in Chandler, Arizona.